0: heard back from Rio Tinto. You poke the bear enough, it will wake up, and we have heard back. So, lots to get to there. Welcome to the Northern Minor Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor and podcast host. And before we get into Rio Tinto, and a very interesting development there, talking to Simon Latendre, the director of media relations there, who reached out to me. Before we begin there, we have the Global Mining Symposium. Yes, you heard that right. The Global Mining Symposium begins today, and you can still sign up. Simply go to northernminer.com and register. I tested it out myself, and it's very easy. You get a nice little, beautiful looking email from Laura, and uh, yeah, with your link, and you're good to go. And it is a virtual mining and investment conference. It takes place from today, September 1st. To September third, so you are not too late, and registration is free. Go to northernminer.com/gms2020, and it's going to be pretty exciting. We have speaker Robert Bayless from Rosskill. We have Michelle Ash from GeoVia Dassault Systems. We have Paul Brink, president and CEO of Franco Nevada. You know, I just heard a interview with James Steine. We don't have James Steins, unfortunately. I heard a rare interview with legendary financial newsletter writer, James Dines. You know what his top pick was for gold? Franco Nevada, isn't that interesting? And you know what else he said? He said, Newmont. <laughs> He's like, what would the institutional investors want? So I gave myself a little pat on the back for that one, but uh, Franco Nevada's Paul Brink is gonna be joining. John Antwi from Elam Mining Incorporated. We have Clive Johnson, B2Gold, John Hathaway, Famed commentator, now at Sprott Asset Management, Peter Moroni, executive chairman of Yamana Gold. Ronald Peter Stifferl, hope I'm pronouncing that right, who is a gold commentator who's really making waves the last year or so. So it's going to be great. And I'm looking at the countdown clock. Zero months, zero days, and three hours and one minute. So sign up today. The last one was awesome. I didn't know what I was going to get into. I did a little interview, and I had to say I was really impressed with the production. Let's see what they do this time, the great event staff. We have a whole bunch of presenters here. I can't get into everyone because it's just too much. But go to northernminer.com GMS2020. Dean McPherson's coming back. Great. Maybe one day soon, Dean, we'll have a glass of wine somewhere. Wouldn't that be great? And uh, we'd like to thank our thought leadership sponsors, Deloitte, SRK, and TMX. Gold sponsors, Orin Resources. Silver sponsors, New Range Gold Corp, Railveyor, Renforth Resources, Saucamin Minerals Corporation, and Gold. And our bronze sponsors, Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, Clone Crippen Burger, and Mining Matters. And finally, our presenting sponsors, Orcrest Gold, Canada Nickel Company, Cobalt Blockchain, Golden Arrow, Golden Birch Resources, New Age, NextGen Energy, Palangio, and Wallbridge. So... The Global Mining Symposium starts today. Go to northernminer.com slash gms2020 and register for free. And yeah, so I want to open the news section today. We're not at the news section yet, but I want to, I'm going to open it with this Rio Tinto business because, yeah, Simon LeTondre, director of media relations there, uh, was not happy with my comment. And I'd just like to, before we get into it, I was defending Rio Tinto only six months ago when they were putting a billion dollars into climate change initiatives, 500 million more than BHP, last I heard, although they're making an announcement right away. We're actually going to cover that story. But I thought they were actually putting a pretty good effort to the point that people, some shareholders were getting concerned. We're giving a billion dollars to climate change. I think it's a good thing, frankly, and I think that was great. And I was sort of saying, you know, people have been pretty critical on Rio Tinto, but I thought what they were doing with climate change, you know, a billion dollars is not nothing. However, uh, subsequently, they have had actions, particularly the blowing up of the 46,000-year-old archaeological site, that really is problematic, to put it mildly. And so the reason I mention the Climate Change Initiative is because I think i've shown that i've been fair to Rio Tinto, and I desire to continue to be fair i I was raised on you know let's you know I took my Greek philosophy, and there's a very important point Socrates you know the apology is where he go, he goes to trial and he is condemned to death by the Athenian public and in the next dialogue, the Crito that's where we learn a very very important principle, one of the most important principles I've ever learned, and that is called the charity of interpretation. And the idea of the charity of interpretation is to understand the opposite point of view of another person, and here's the important part, in the way that they would want to be understood. If you're really trying to get to a deeper understanding with someone, you are trying to understand their argument from their point of view. And in the Crito, where Socrates is in jail, he's waiting a month to be put to death because of some festival. Crito bribes the guard that is in the prison with Socrates, and he says, we can get you out of here, no problem. Everything's taken care of. We can take you to Thebes, we can leave Athens, and we can take care of it. You know what Socrates says? On what grounds that I feel differently, that the outcome was unjust? And what would they say to me? Well, you've spent your entire life here under our laws, benefited from our laws, and raised your family. You could have left at any time. And now, when it's inconvenient for you, Socrates, you're leaving and you're escaping, and for what? So I could have a, a few more fancy dinners, you know? And... So this is a a very important principle, the charity of interpretation. And I try and bring that to all, any controversial issue, to everything we discuss here. Because I am not simply trying to, as I put in the last show, I'm not here to score points. You know, the role I see for myself here is as a referee. I am not going for Team Red or Team Blue. I am a referee. And as Socrates so beautifully puts it, Are we just saying words here to entertain ourselves, or are we talking about real things? Are we just trying to keep ourselves busy with words and they don't really mean anything? So with that, I hope you are ready for an action-packed show. There's tons of news going on. September, Happy New Year, lest we forget. Happy Media New Year. September has begun today. Get on the train before it leaves the station, because this one is taking off. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter, at Northern You can find us on Instagram, at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we post these podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to our next Mining Minute with Petro Canada Lubricants, Gord Sosinski. Joining us once again is Gord Sosinski, Senior Technical Services Advisor for Petro Canada Lubricants. And Gord, the low temperatures, the Canadian winter, as we all know, that mining equipment operators experience can impact equipment performance. How can engines be protected?
1: That's a great question, because significant engine wear occurs at startup, so preventing that wear is very important to your engine life. Having the right oil viscosity, base oil and additive combination are key to reducing engine wear at startup. Having an oil that has great low temperature pumpability characteristics that will allow the oil to be pumped out of the oil gallery, then the cold cranking properties which allows the oil to be delivered to the engine components when the engine's being turned over will help eliminate wear at startup. All of those properties should also be available in various viscosity grades. The key is understanding how your lubricant will perform at those low temperatures, and that will allow you to be better prepared during those shoulder seasons and winter months alike.
0: And so how do I discover, like, let's say I just bought a huge mining machine, and I want to make sure that it's going to run in the winter properly. How do I do that? Should I call you guys, or what should I do?
1: Absolutely. If you're unsure of how to get things done, or if you want to make a change in the current lubricant that you're using, the best thing to do is call somebody with some lubrication expertise. Cause a lot of this information is very complicated and relies on interpreting research test results to determine what those pumpability and cranking limits are. And somebody with some lubrication expertise can guide you along the way to help you do that efficiently and effectively.
0: Okay, excellent. That is very helpful. And should I talk to my local expert or is there someone at Petro Canada Lubricants I can contact?
1: You can reach your local distributor who can get you in touch with the technical service advisor. Or you can call us toll free at 1-866-335-3369. And they'll be able to direct you to the tech service advisor for your region.
0: Okay, beautiful. Thank you, Gord. And uh, we will see you next week for our next Mining Minute. And if you'd like to learn more about Gord Sosinski and PetroCanada Lubricants products, simply go to our show notes and you'll find a link to the PetroCanada Lubricants website. And turning to the website, we are going to delay the Rio Tinto thing for the main feature. I, I am recording this late on Tuesday and our opening remarks were fairly short for the Global Mining Symposium. We're going to include those too. But I thought we would put things together and basically keep the normal flow of the program and put everything, all the uh, Rio Tinto stuff, in the future area with the welcome remarks. And so turning to the website, BHP plans very tangible actions on carbon emissions. And this was a big story. This is Cecilia dot Com. BHP is fine-tuning a revamped strategy to reduce the company's operational emissions and its use of diesel by 2030. Chief Executive Mike Henry said on Thursday, and it was a little vague, they said they have, quote, very tangible actions, which will be announced on September 10th as part of the world's largest miner's broader commitment to become carbon neutral by 2050. Henry told shareholders he would also announce concrete steps towards reducing the company's Scope 3 emissions, those generated by end users. Now, Scope 3 emissions are the most controversial, I think we were seeing, I think in an earlier story with Rio Tinto, that they sort of sidestepped the scope three emissions. Yeah, I I think they're like, because it is pretty, I mean, I think I asked originally, how do you control that scope three emissions? Nevertheless, BHP is, they're going to take concrete steps towards it. Maybe they have good ideas. Let's see. BHP is the top exporter of coking coal used in steel making and the third ranking producer of iron ore, the raw material for steel. The highly polluting process of making steel involves adding cooking coal to iron ore to make the alloy and is responsible for up to 9% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Henry noted that some of the projects that will, that will help the company cut emissions will be funded through a $400 million climate investment program announced in 2019. He also highlighted some of the steps the company has already taken to become a, quote, greener company. Those include carbon capture and storage and other innovations such as direct air capture. BHP announced four energy agreements last year to run its Chilean operations, including the Spence Platte and Escondida, the world's largest copper mine, entirely on renewable power. And they are also aiming to eliminate the use of water from aquifers in Chile by 2030. And so that's the latest on BHP. So the march to ESG continues. So very interesting goings on at BHP. I guess real news is yet to come. That'll come on September 10th. So in about a week and a half, what else do we have? We have news on Pergera. Now, Pergera is the big gold mine owned by Barrick and Zijin Mining in Papua New Guinea. And we have a couple of stories. The first story was that PNG, Papua New Guinea government, has granted the mining lease. And this is what everything was being battled over, was the mining lease for Porguera. And they have given it to a state-backed miner, according to a report. Yeah, and the state-owned miner is called Kumul Minerals Holdings. So right now, just to bring you up to speed, Barrick and its Chinese partner, Zijin Mining, are embroiled in a dispute with Prime Minister James Marape, who in April rejected their application for a lease extension. And in response to the company's temporarily halted operations and they also served Marape with a dispute notice arguing the refusal of the Porgera license extension violates a bilateral investment treaty between PNG and Australia the move they said also infringed international law governing foreign investment and Barrick said at the time that it would take PNG to international arbitration Barrick New Guinea Limited BNL Porgera's operator said in release it was aware of alleged actions taken by the Marape government to grant the mining lease for Porgera to state-owned Kumul Mineral Holdings the company noted it considered such a move, quote, unlawful and, quote, invalid, adding that it was unaware of any consultation with the local owners about the change. And we have a quote from Barrack New Guinea, quote, in purportedly granting a special mining license in this non-transparent and rushed manner, the Marape government set a precedent of the state disenfranchising landowners. making decisions with fundamental consequences for their futures and those of their children without doing them the justice of listening to their views." So they are talking about the locals. Now, a lot of the locals from our initial reports in May, April-May, was the local landowners for the people who were quite annoyed with Barak and Zijin. In May, Barak offered an extra 15% stake in the Porgera mine to local landowners in a fresh attempt to break the impasse with the government over the mine's future. PNG later threatened Barrick with criminal proceedings claiming the company's joint venture in the country was planning to legally export $13 million in gold and silver to Australia and we covered that BNL refuted the allegations and so that was from August 28th so a few days ago and then just crossing the wires here at the Northern Miner Barrick takes dispute over Porgera mining rights to PNG Supreme Court A follow-up story by Cecilia Jemazmi, and here is the latest. Barrick Gold will take a dispute over mining rights to the Pergara gold mine in Papua New Guinea to the country's Supreme Court after a minor court dismissed the Canadian company's attempt to regain its license. And basically, it's an update of the previous story. So they are taking it to the Supreme Court of Papua New Guinea. So Barrick is not leaving without a fight. So interesting. And... We also had this Deep Green Metals story, and I thought this was really interesting. It's another one of these deep sea miners, but what I found so interesting about it is how diligently they are trying to do it right. Uh, They are partnering with scientists on a seafloor discovery program. Mining.com staff, Deep Green Metals has formed partnerships with scientific research institutions and universities on its deep sea discovery program, to characterize the potential impacts of lifting polymetallic nodules from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, in April, the Canadian startup, which plans to extract cobalt and battery metals from the seafloor, added a new area to its seabed portfolio. Don't we remember just last week, there were the guys that were taking it to NAFTA because they had sort of been denied and there's this big environmental issue with the guys with the guys who want to do deep sea mining. It was a different company. I'd have to dig it up, but... Basically, the polar opposite strategy. They're going to NAFTA and saying, how dare you? Anyways, so back to our guys here. Experts from the UK National Oceanography Centre, Natural History Museum in London, University of Gothenburg, University of Leeds, Harriet Watt University of the Lyle Centre, Florida State University, University of Hawaii, Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology, and Texas A&M will join the program while maintaining their academic independence, Deep Green said. The Battery Metals Company is investing over $60 million to accelerate a collaborative program to address outstanding questions on the potential environmental impacts of collecting polymetallic nodules from the deep seabed in the Pacific Ocean. Skipping down a bit to the quote, we have Deep Green... Chief Ocean Scientist, Dr. Greg Stone, this is very kind of sci-fi, quote, This is a collaboration of the best minds in ocean science coming together to answer many important questions about deep sea ecosystem function and connectivity through the water column. The program will enable Deep Green to put forward a rigorous, peer-reviewed environmental impact statement to the International Seabed Authority. One of the primary concerns that researchers will address is the impact of sediment plumes on deep ocean fauna throughout the water column and at varying spatial and temporal scales. And get this, the global team of environmental scientists will work to deliver a state baseline biological survey of Deep Green's NORI Nori exploration area to meet or exceed international regulatory requirements under the International Seabed Authority, established by the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. So they want to meet or exceed international regulatory requirements. So a very novel approach proceeding with science, caution, and responsibility, bringing in scientists and really partnering up with people and showing concern. So very interesting move from Deep Green Metals. There have been a few of these companies and juries out, like none of them have really succeeded on a mass scale that I've seen. I mean, there was n- Nautilus. I think they went bankrupt as far as I understand. So that is happening. Also, we have a rare earth processing plant that's going to be built in Saskatchewan. The Saskatchewan government is committing to build it by 2022, also by Cecilia Jamasmi. And Canada will have its first rare earth processing plant in operation by the end of 2022. Is the province of Saskatchewan, has committed $31 million to build a new facility to provide a domestic supply of the key ingredients for military weapons, electric vehicles, and smartphones. You know, we've been discussing rare earths for 10 years as an industry and how difficult it is to process it. You mean to tell me that it only would cost $31 million and a government that's willing to provide a little land and that's all we had to do? Seems a little too easy. And yeah, we'll just do it by the end of 2022. So just a little background here. The process of turning rare earth elements ore into individual products is done in two main stages. The first is the concentration of ore to mixed REE or rare earth elements carbonate. The second is the more complex separation stage that converts the mixed rare earth elements carbonate to commercial pure grade rare earth elements. The facility owned and operated by the Saskatchewan Research Council will address both stages of REE processing. The province said the facility would be an industry model for future commercial rare earth expansion. And we have a quote from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who said in a statement, Saskatchewan's new rare earth processing facility will be a catalyst to stimulate the resource sector in the province and across Canada, providing the early stage supply chain needed to generate cash flow, investment, and industrial growth of the sector. So the plant, looks like it's going to be in the north of Saskatoon, my hometown. It's going to be 69,000 square feet and will employ about two dozen people. The facility is expected to be fully operational in late 2022 with construction beginning this fall. So it starts right away. So interesting. I wonder how the people, I mean, generally the rare earth processing is kind of a NIMBY, not in my backyard type issue. Uh, I wonder how the locals are trading it. Might have to make some calls here. And another story, we have Carl A. Williams, and he did a story on the Bunker Hill Mine, and the title of that story is New Management Brings, Quote, Modern Thinking to Environmentally Challenged Bunker Hill Mine. And it's a bit of a long story here, so we can't get too far into it, but basically the Bunker Hill Mine has been around since 1885 when it was discovered by Noah Kellogg And it's been producing basically since then until 1981. And skip down a bit here. However, the mine closed in 1981 due to a combination of low base metal prices and the cost of upgrading its processing and smelting operations to meet new environmental regulations introduced by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And in 1983, the EPA declared the Bunker Hill Mine and Smelter Complex the country's second largest, quote, Superfund site. The EPA's Superfund program is responsible for cleaning up some of the U.S.'s most contaminated land. So it sounds like this was a polluter, if I understand this story right. And what's interesting is Bunker Hill Mining, a company named after the mine, has agreed to take it over and they are trying to reopen it. But they're basically have a new mentality. They're trying to bring new thinking into it. And it's under new leadership. So in March, 2020, Richard Williams, a former COO at Barrick was appointed the, to the board of directors. And he's appointed the board of directors. And as, he was also made executive chairman of the company. And he says, quote, I was excited to be joining the team and relish the opportunity to unlock the extraordinary potential of this remarkable asset. We plan to verify, explore, and then develop the mine's untapped high-grade silver potential." Then we have a quote from Sam Ash, who is the new company president and CEO. And he says, quote, In April, I relocated to northern Idaho to help accelerate our first phase exploration program. As our understanding of the property has increased during the initial exploration, it suggested that the mine has a strong silver enrichment. And here later on in the story, we have a quote from Ash. And this is basically why I want to get to this story. Quote, because I think it just says something about the mining industry today, where, how it's thinking and where it's at. Quote, one of the key aspects, because it's a story we're hearing over and over, and I think it's a great thing. Quote, one of the key aspects for me is to change the value proposition for the mining industry and the vision mining offers the world. Traditionally, the industry has been about delivering value to shareholders, but typically at a cost to the environment and local communities. The Bunker Hill Mine offers an opportunity to take a project that has had a challenging past, both environmentally and socially, and approach it in a completely different way by offering an entirely different value proposition. With the right management approach, modern thinking, systems, and practices, and modern approaches to engagement, you can generate a tremendous amount of value across the whole shareholder spectrum. So that is... Sam Ash, the new president and CEO of Bunker Hill Mining. So that is by Carl A. Williams, the Northern Miner's senior reporter and science reporter. Very interesting story there, Carl. And finally, we have this big story on the copper market. Roskill sees, quote, structural shift in copper market on intense buying from China. And this is by Frick Ells from mining.com. And so copper has broken $3 a pound, and it's sort of going above and below it. It is up more than 7% on the year and up 50% since the lows in March. But the most interesting thing about it is that, according to the article here, Frick says, China is responsible for more than half of the world's copper consumption, and the country is buying copper at record-setting rates. And we have a quote from Jonathan Barnes, who is from Roskill a London-based metals and mineral research firm. And the quote is, China is importing more refined metal from nearly every country, suggesting a structural shift, not a temporary change. If you are looking for signs of panic buying, you can find evidence of that in China. Total Chinese stocks represent less than two weeks consumption at current rates of use. So it's interesting because it's true the economy went down, so demand went down, But so did supply, as a lot of mines came offline. And now it looks like demand is outweighing supply. So hard to imagine in March and April when the sky was falling. But here we are, $3 copper and rising. Further, Barnes believes global scrap flows may not normalize until the first quarter of next year. He says, the copper price will likely rise further towards the end of 2020 and the current environment has strong parallels to the rebound in the copper price after the global financial crisis. So there you have it, copper is on a tear. And with that, let's turn to metal prices and see what's going on with all the other metals too. To metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at Mining.com who provide us now with these prices each and every week. And if you ever want to find them for yourself, just go to Mining.com/markets, and you will see the screen I am looking at. And on September first, gold is trading at one thousand nine hundred and seventy-five dollars and sixty-eight cents. That is forty-five dollars higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $28.48. That is $1.89 higher than last week's quote, getting close to its recent highs. Platinum is trading at $949.16 per ounce. That is $16 higher than last week. And palladium, is trading at $2,292.19. That is $129 higher than last week. So precious metals make a comeback after last week's pullback. And industrial metals, copper, is trading at $3.05 per pound. That is 7 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is up 2 cents at 80 cents per pound. And that has just been a steady rise for the last, geez, it was always almost down at $0.65. Now it's at $0.80 per pound. And lead is at $0.90 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week. Also doing very well. Nickel is on fire at $6.99. That is $0.38 higher than last week's quote. Tin is almost at its previous highs at $8.07. That is $0.06 higher than last week's quote. Cobalt is a penny lower at $14.98, and zinc, also higher at $1.15, $0.04 higher, and that is the highest quote. I've been doing these metal price quotes for over a year now, a little over a year. $1.15 is where we were this time last year, and it went all the way down to 84 cents in our quotes, and now it's all the way back up to $1.15. So industrial metals have the wind behind their backs. So do precious metals. The great reflation shows no sign of abating. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have two things. We have the Rio Tinto response. And we go kind of deep into those emails to really try and understand what's going on. So we're going to start with that. And after that, we're going to listen to the opening remarks of the Global Mining Symposium. They're a little shorter this year. There you're going to have Anthony Vaccaro, Northern Miner Group publisher, and a little bit from Laura Daly, our event producer. And so let's start with Rio Tinto, and and then we'll turn over to the Global Mining Symposium. This email shortly after our last show. And so I've had a few days to think about it. And this was from Simon Latendre, who is director of media relations for Canada in the US. And I think the fairest way to deal w- with the email is actually to read out parts of it. And I'm going to try not to leave out anything. If it's a little long, but let's just see how far we can get in this, and we'll try and make it quick so that we can kind of get all the points out and see what they're saying, so that we can sort of see what their point of view is. So, so here's the email, which came after last week's show. Good afternoon, Mr. Pocabelli. My name is Simon Latendre, and I work in media relations for Rio Tinto. I've been with the company for a little less than a year, and I don't think we've had a chance to speak, so I want to take the opportunity to introduce myself. I listened to your latest podcast about the Jukin Gorge incident. I think you did a very good job in terms of showing different perspectives on this issue, including actions taken by the company to ensure this situation doesn't happen again, and reactions from various stakeholders. However, I wanted to follow up with you on background about your assertions that there is a value problem at Rio Tinto, and that our company has, quote, a lot of skeletons in the closet. I just want to bring a couple of counterexamples to your attention, including one specifically about the Pebble Project, which you also discussed in this episode. Back in April 2014, Rio Tinto divested its participation in Northern Dynasty, owner of Pebble. Instead of selling the shares, Jean-Sébastien Jacques, who was chief executive of Rio Tinto Copper at the time, donated Rio Tinto's stake in Northern Dynasty to two charities— the Alaska Community Foundation and the Bristol Bay Native Corporation Education Foundation. To this day, this donation helps to support a variety of community initiatives across Alaska. I've attached three reports from the Alaska Community Foundation showing the kinds of projects that have benefited from this decision. Regarding relationships with First Nations, I have personally attended celebrations for the signing of two long-term partnerships with Canadian First Nations communities since I joined Rio Tinto. The first one was with the Innu community of Aquanichet, near our Ilmenity mine in Havre saint pierre Quebec. And the second one was with the Cheslata Carrier Nation in British Columbia, near Rio Tinto's hydroelectric operations in the Nechaco watershed. It's almost done. Each of these agreements include concrete initiatives to support better education, create jobs, stimulate economic development, and protect the environment and First Nations culture. Last month, we also announced a partnership with the First Nations Education Foundation and the Haisla Nation to preserve and revitalize the Haisla language in British Columbia. So I really think any assessment of Rio Tinto's values needs to take into account the tremendous efforts our teams and leaders are making to build mutually beneficial relationships with the communities where we operate. You can always contact me if you'd like to learn more about that or have questions about Rio Tinto. Best regards. So a fairly nice email here. So this was my take on this. And I think it's great that Rio Tinto has really these good initiatives as a good corporate citizen, and you could argue even a generous corporate citizen with the donation of Rio Tinto's uh, Northern Dynasty shares. And even the fact that they were exiting Northern Dynasty, which even a lot of mining people will say is a troubled project, but that's debatable. But even the fact that they were trying to exit it, they donated the shares, I mean, it does show goodwill. The problem is is it doesn't really have anything to do with the Jukin Gorge site. This is great. I mean, it's you could say it's a testimony to Rio Tinto having doing good things. But as I said in previous episodes, uh, they might as well have taken that billion dollars they spent on climate change and thrown it in the river if they're going to do other things that are not moral. Now, it's debatable whether what happened at Juke and Gorge is moral, but there's a lot of outrage out there. And the impression, as I very carefully put in my return email, there's a perception out there that Rio Tinto, and as I put in the... A previous episode, there seems to be a values problem. Now, that is not to say there is, but there does seem to be one. Now, to use an analogy, if I rob a bank, is it a legitimate defense to say, but I donated to sick children's hospital and I also have donated to the firefighters fund in the past. Is that a legitimate defense? And the judge will probably take that into account and say, okay, this person has a mixed legacy. If they robbed a bank, maybe they are redeemable. Maybe they are not just, you know, hopeless, but does it excuse robbing the bank? Right? So now I'm not comparing, I guess I am comparing the archaeological site to Rodbick. But you see what I'm saying. In a sense, doing right in certain areas do not excuse wrongs in other areas, right? So that was one thing. And so I replied, and I don't know if we should get too far into it. And shall we go quickly into my reply? Because I mean, let's be fair. And you guys can sort of make, you know, make your own minds up so and you can always email me at apocabelli p-o-c-o-b-e-l-l-i apocabelli at at northernminer.com hi simon thanks for the message and thanks for listening it's great to hear rio tinto is paying attention to the show i looked over the information you provided yet it only addresses the issues brought up in the show indirectly through other initiatives unrelated to the australian blast scandal I think it's great that Rio Tinto is making efforts to have good corporate governance in the examples you provided, but I'm hardly alone in questioning the values of the company. Australia's parliament seems concerned about this very issue in their inquiry, and even Rio Tinto's own board has sanctioned the pay of your chief executive and the other top executives as a result of questionable decisions that were made by the team. I realize it might sting to hear people question the values of the company, I really do appreciate that. Nobody wants that. But there's a very real perception that exists with the Australian public, its members of parliament, and for people who are watching this story from around the world, that there's a problem in the corporate governance of the company. What happened in Australia is no small matter. And as many people have pointed out, there are still many important questions that remain unanswered. That all being said, I'm more than happy to have you or another member of the executive team, including the chief executive, come on the program and clear the air. As I said at the beginning of the show, I'm not looking to score points here, so I'm happy to provide a very fair interview and let Rio Tinto explain why the perception is false. Now, I didn't get much of an answer in my opinion, but you can finally see what Simone Latendre answered. And I, I think Simon Latendre is doing his job. Okay, I think he his job is to make Rio Tinto basically put them in the best light. I mean, isn't that fair? I mean, his job is not to necessarily, if Rio Tinto does bad, his job is not to highlight that, right? That's my job, <laughs> right? Uh, his job is to make, I mean, he's the, you know, director of media relations for Canada in the U.S. So, hello again, Adrian. So, this is his reply, And again, it seems like he's very cordial, which is nice. Uh, Hello again, Adrian. I think the best answer to the concerns you raised below is the board review itself, specifically the section entitled Priorities for Change. And Simon highlights a couple of points from the board, and I'm going to read them for the sake of fairness and clarity. Point 52. The root causes of events that led to the destruction of the Jukin 1 and Jukin 2 rock shelters in May 2020 highlight the need for change in Rio Tinto's cultural heritage management. This encompasses the way we manage our relationships with traditional owners, the standards we apply, the levels of oversight and assurance we specify, the governance and accountability we put in place, the comprehensive heritage risk assessments we embed in our decision-making, the integrated and inclusive work culture we insist on, and the processes of improved coordination across our organization that we require. So, to go back a bit, the root causes of events that led to the destruction of the Jukin 1 and Jukin 2 rock shelters in May 2020 highlight the need for change in Rio Tinto's cultural heritage management. And it encompasses those following things uh, standards. So, basically, we need to change. Okay. Point 53 is the second point that Simon shared with us. The objectives of this agenda for change and consultation are clear to ensure that what happened in the Jukin Gorge in May 2020 is not repeated elsewhere in the future, to rebuild a partnership with the PKKP based on respect, trust, mutual benefits, and shared understanding, and to ensure that learnings are applied across all of Rio Tinto's operations worldwide. So basically, we're sorry and we should change. Is that, like, I I mean, it seems to me we're saying we screwed up. I mean, let's employ the charity of interpretation. But hey, we screwed up. We're trying to change. It's, you know, like we're doing what we can. We're trying to rebuild our relationship. Now, then Simone did something which makes me very uncomfortable. And this made me very uncomfortable as a member of the media. And he said, between you and me, and then he underlined it. And he's no one is trying to down and it's like, what is this? Like, what do you mean between you and me? Is this what you learn at PR school, public relations school to bring me into your confidence? Make me so like so I have nothing to do with Rio Tinto, and I'm not an accomplice in this. There's no between you and me when you're emailing as a director of media relations to some person you've never met in the news media. What is this between you and me? I didn't agree to this. And what he said was pretty benign, but i very uncomfortable with that. So, you know, I've been torn. Do I share what he says between you and me? I think that Simon LaTondre is probably a nice guy. I think he's trying to do his job. What I don't appreciate, though, is this between you and me stuff. I didn't ask for any confidence from you. So everything he says is on the record. So I don't know why that's between you and me. And frankly, what he says is pretty benign. So I am going to share it. Between you and me, no one is trying to downplay what happened at the Juke and Gorge here. The board's decision not to grant performance-related bonuses totaling more than $5 million to three senior executives actually shows there are consequences when we fail to meet some of our own internal standards and procedures. Of course, much more work will be done internally to address this issue. In parallel, Rio Tinto will continue to cooperate with the inquiry by the Joint Standing Committee on Northern Australia. Rio Tinto will also continue to support the Western Australian government's planned reform of the Aboriginal Heritage Act of 1972. Thanks. I don't know why that's a big secret. I don't know why that's between me and him. And it's not between, like you send a, and that's for every other public relations person who is representing a company, there is no between you and me. It's not like I've been hanging out with Simon at some conference for 12 hours and we're having drinks off the record, you know? And then, okay, like maybe, but there is no off the record. I didn't agree to anything here. So, and I don't even frankly see this as, I see it as quite benign what he says. What offends me is this between you and me stuff. So anyways, let's leave it at that. I told Simon, thank you. I'll mention the board review points you forwarded on the next show. And don't hesitate to reach out to me should you have any more questions. As well, the door is open. If you or anyone else at Rio Tinto want to do an interview on the matter. So, This is an important point. If you feel like you've been wronged and your character is being disparaged unfairly, don't you want to get on the microphone? Don't you want to get on the microphone and tell people why you're being treated wrongly, unjustly, and nobody is being offered. Simon Latendre doesn't want to come on. Nobody from Rio Tinto is being offered. And we're all just supposed to say, okay, well, you did some good stuff in the past, you know, again, like let's be fair, like I think they are admitting they did wrong. The board has sanctioned the chief executive, so I think they're trying, but then I took a closer look at the board review, and this was also disturbing. So I go to the check out the report that Simon Latendre graciously mentioned, and so I took a look and. There is a long kind of, you know, a bit of a boring Rio Tinto board review. Sort of scan it over. Like, it's sort of like the, you know, I don't, again, I'm not trying to be too hard on these guys, but it's sort of like the corporate speak that we saw in the emails of the quotes, the quoted part of the emails, not Simón but the uh, board review where it's just kind of like we are doing what we can. But on the website with the board review PDF download, you can... Also, see, there's a press release, and on paragraph 3, the board review concluded that while Rio Tinto had obtained legal authority to impact the Jukan rock shelters, it fell short of the standards and internal guidance that Rio Tinto sets for itself, over and above its legal obligations. So we fell short, even though it was legal, we fell short of our Basically, I don't know what you'd call that other than values or your expectations of yourself. Let's call it that. The review found no single root cause or error that directly resulted in the destruction of the rock shelters. It was the result of a series of decisions, actions, and omissions over an extended period of time underpinned by flaws in systems, data sharing, engagement with the company, and with the PKKP, and poor decision-making. So what does that tell you? It basically says no one is directly responsible for this. And my question for Rio Tinto is where does the buck stop? Where does the buck stop? If I am the head of an organization and there's nobody responsible and something terrible happens, whose responsibility is it? Where does the buck stop? And at Rio Tinto, it doesn't seem to stop anywhere. And it sure as heck doesn't stop with the CEO. Is this leadership? And hence, back to my original point, we have a problem, there, the perception is, is there is a crisis here in values and leadership. None of what I've gotten so far has changed that. Now, I think it's great what they've done. Maybe that helps their case a little bit. You know, the, the, and I appreciate Simon Le Tendre. and they're welcome to come on this show. The door is open, an open invitation from someone to Rio Tinto. Let's make nice. Let's tell us what you're really doing, and let's just look at it. The door is open, and look at Sam Walsh, the previous CEO. He refused to testify. I think it was like a voluntary thing. Uh, he refused to testify, and if he's so, like, why aren't they being forthcoming. So anyway, uh, I wish everybody the best. I mean, nobody is looking for war here. Uh, I just wish everybody the best and, uh, you know, but I think there's a lot of the questions remain like this, uh, you know, pointing to other previous stuff in the past of good deeds does not excuse. What may have happened here, which is, an, the question is, is was there an awareness? I mean, Rio Tinto is saying no, but there is parliamentary Australian parliamentary hearings to actually try and determine. And what about the four options? Let's not forget about that. When we look at the details on this case, Rio Tinto only presented one option to the PKKP, which was the option to blow it up. There were three other options that were not included. To, and in their presentation of the PKKP. And those options would have resulted in not having access, as far as I understand, to that $135 million iron ore deposit. So there is kind of, there. I think there, like, I mean, poor decision-making. I mean, that's what the board is calling it. Yeah, I don't know if that's just poor decision-making. So with that, I'm not looking to beat a dead horse here, But, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of questions aren't answered. So I would like to thank, though, Simon LaTondresse for reaching out. And uh, I welcome him and anybody else, again, from Rio Tinto to join the program. Email anytime. And so with that, let's let's turn to lighter topics. Let's let's lighten the vibe a little bit with the opening of the Global Mining Symposium. That's some great 80s music at the beginning and I think they're going to keep that going if I was a sponsor I'd be thrilled to have my name with some great music behind it so great job there guys now we got some brief introductory remarks from Anthony Vaccaro Northern Minor group publisher and yeah so they're opening up the festivities and let's turn it over to Anthony and I think we got Laura Daly on there too
2: Great introduction. Thank you, Laura. I'm humbled by it. A lot of, uh, too much about me. Uh, not enough about eighties music and not enough about mining, but we're going to correct those two things over the next few days. Uh, we had a lot of fun, uh, getting the eighties music rolling on the last symposium that was in June, the Canadian mining symposium. It was just part of the fun that we had. The main thing was bringing you, our audience, some of the industry's leading lights, best minds, and Really great conversation and great conversation coming from you, the audience. So we're really excited to have you back. That last symposium, over 2000 delegates registered for it and people tuned in and participated from over 80 countries. So truly global event. And that fed into our decision to name this one, the Global Mining Symposium. We'll continue with the Canadian Mining Symposium. That's been a premium event that we launched in London over four years ago. That will be our springtime edition of our virtual symposium. But this one and the one we'll be doing in November will be the Global Mining Symposium. And we've invited a suite of great speakers, panelists from around the world. Our first panel is actually gonna be moderated by Andrew Cheadle, who some of you might know. I'll give a proper introduction later. He'll be joining us from London, England. We have panelists joining us from Australia uh, and really around the world. So fantastic opportunity to be a place of convening and to bring people together at a wonderful time in our industry. Also, the the opening song kind of posts the points, I hope, to that wonderful time that we're in. Listen, not turning a blind eye to a lot of the strife and the social justice issues that are very important and are going on in our world right now that we all are taking mind of, but we also need our positive energy. And uh, I thought general public's tenderness gave a great message uh, to remember those those tender moments in our lives and how we relate to each other. Listen, the industry right now, it's not hard to feel a lot of positive vibes. Since the, the last symposium is in June, Copper is now broken through to a 26-month high. It's above that $3 level on forwards that are trading in December. And We'll have a president of an emerging Copper producer, John Antwi, here on Thursday to discuss all things Copper. Gold is going strong, silver is going strong, and those companies we brought you at our last event are going strong. This is a fun one. I kind of ran some numbers on this last night. We brought you nine presenting companies at our last virtual symposium, and they've been on a tear since that time. Since the last symposium, they're up an average of 54% compared to the Junior Gold Index, which is up 28% over that time period. So some strong outperformance there and a special shout out to some of the top performers in that group. Condor Gold has been up 40% since June. Granite Creek Copper has been up 60% and Metallic Minerals up a whopping 166% since June I hope some of our viewers then got in on that stock, they have that great high-grade Silver project in the Yukon and it's really getting some excellent market recognition. So congratulations to the, the group of presenters and let's hope that the companies presenting at this edition of the Global Mining Symposium can have some of that similar market success over the coming months. I think heading into September, we know generally Gold prices come back even stronger in September, I think we're starting to see that. But nice to have Warren Buffett finally get on that gold train. I knew it was just a matter of time. What was going on with Berkshire Hathaway in the early part of the spring, it was clear that gold is where you needed to be. And now Warren's joined the crew. So welcome on board, Warren Buffett, if you're watching, um, listen, staying with some of the good news. It's been a really fun week for me personally. I'm honored as Laura mentioned, honored to be a member of the Canadian mining hall of fame board. And last week was our voting week. Now I can't reveal much cause the results from the voting for this year's slate of inductees into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame will be announced in the Northern Miner in October. But a really fantastic year, so people know how this works. The Northern Miner, Mining Association of Canada, CIAM and PDAC all each have three representatives on the board. And there's just so much industry experience on that board, it's a good diverse board. Everyone takes it extremely serious. We have a five-hour discussion. This year, we had over 900 pages to read because the nomination packages were so strong. Everyone read every one of those pages. It's a very rigorous process and then a very healthy discussion. And I think we've done an amazing job this year of getting some just exceptional, exceptional people. It's really tough because the nature of it is you're making selection and you're leaving out some great people with great careers, but it's really about honing in and finding those exceptional, exceptional candidates. And I think we've done it. So that was uh, that was exciting and very fun to read through 900 pages of mining history and all these wonderful careers and all the support letters that maybe some of you that are tuning in right now, maybe even wrote some of those support letters that, uh, that came in. So they all matter. And uh, thank you for everyone for making the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame the world's best mining Hall of Fame. I would say it certainly gets unbelievable support. Let's turn to today's event. Tomorrow morning, I'll do a little bit of a, a brief on what's going on in the news. I think that's enough for today. Let's get to the what you're all here for, which is our amazing guest. And uh, Laura Daly, you did a great job introducing me. Laura is our spectacular events producer for the Northern Miner Group. She has done just a fantastic job in turning us over, pivoting us into the virtual realm once COVID-19 struck. Getting some great support from Miladin Kovacevic and Jessica Jubb, who are also behind the scenes and making sure we can deliver you but we hope will be another fun and excellent event. So Laura, why don't I flip it back to you and you can maybe tell our audience what they're going to expect, how to join. Let's make sure we got all that and maybe a little bit of the uh, the format, how it works with the Q&A, that important detail, if you don't mind. Of course not. Um, thank you very much for that too. So we're excited. We have over uh, 250 people online right now and the number keeps growing as we keep talking. Mm-hmm.
0: And there you have it the introduction to the global mining symposium and laura just i would have left her on a little longer but she just went into technical information for you as a delegate so if you want to join in they're going right now as i record this and they're going to be going for the next two days as well just go to northernminer.com gms 2020 and you can join in on the festivities thank you once again for listening And I wish you all the happiest of Media New Years. And if you want to share this with your friends, we always appreciate that. Until next week, take care.